0: I'm Jim Cates. Today we have a special guest, Brooke L. Blower. She is uh, an associate professor at Boston University, and her new book is called Americans in a World at War, Intimate Histories from the Crash of Pan Am's Yankee Clipper. It's published by Oxford University Press. Brooke Blower, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Yeah, so glad to have you with us today. Uh, as I w- was saying to you before we started recording, your book is interesting not only from the standpoint of history, because it's about World War II, which is... Right up there with Civil War in terms of its in the Civil War in terms of its grip on the American imagination, I think, but also is a kind of a bold experiment in historiography and storytelling. And I, as I said, I, I think it's a it, it's an interesting work, a very very ambitious work. So I want to delve into that as well. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? How you got to uh, uh, Boston, what you do, your specialty, and then especially how you came to the topic of World War II, writing a book on World War II, which is something you might not have thought earlier that you would have ended up doing. <laughs>
1: definitely, definitely not. Um, so, my background is in um, cultural history and political culture, urban history. Uh, and transnational history. I studied a lot of European history as well as the U.S. history as an undergraduate when I did my undergraduate work at Berkeley, and I was really interested in thinking about how American history could be revitalized by embedding it much more richly in other kinds of non-U.S. histories. You know, in U.S. history we tend to talk about U.S. history, and it's kind of in a self-contained. Place and then other world histories are sort of taught and, and explored elsewhere, and so um, my first book um, was a book about Americans in Paris during uh, the 1920s and 1930s. And the reason I wanted to work on that was because Americans often tell that story as one of Americans, you know, Americans going to Paris and having a wonderful time and being free from all the politics that they had to deal with at home. And having read a lot of European history, I knew this just wasn't the case. Paris was an incredibly polarized place. Uh, It has one of the highest concentrations of communists and fascists of anywhere in the world at that point. Um, And so I thought, you know, I wanted to sort of experiment how much how much European history can I pull into this story to tell a different version of this kind of classic iconic moment of the Americans in Paris. And in a sense, my second book is 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 a similar type of experiment um, I never, as you, as you mentioned, I never thought I would work on World War II. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, you know, when the Stephen Ambrose books were coming out, when the History Channel was coming out. And, um, you know, World War II was basically everywhere um, when I was a, a young adult. And, uh, and it was told in a very particular way. I focused, you know, heavily on high diplomacy—Churchill, Stalin, Roosevelt—that story, uh, and on combat soldiers' experiences. And this made a lot of sense because people were doing a lot of important oral history work uh, with, you know, aging veterans. In my opinion, there was something about World War II that was proving healing for a lot of Americans, a lot of American viewers and readers, because. Um, there was this noble story that could be told about uh, Americans engaged in a war uh, in the wake of the Vietnam War, which obviously didn't didn't have that kind of narrative, didn't do that kind of narrative work for Americans. And so I thought World War Two, I don't want to. That's not for me. That's you know, that's that's not at all what I'm interested in. I'm interested in political culture and all these other things going on. And then when I got a job at Boston University um, teaching history, uh, in the early 2000s, I was teaching a course and I really stumbled over how to teach World War II. And I was trying to do it in a way that was refreshingly transnational. So if you want to talk about, say, you know, the civil rights movement, um, you can you can embed that in the history of decolonization happening in Africa and Southeast Asia and elsewhere to sort of make Americans understand that this isn't just happening in a vacuum, the civil rights movement in the, in the South, in the American South. Uh, But World War II just didn't seem to have that kind of story to it. And I had one of those weird moments where I said, oh, someone should really write a book about this, you know, and then I realized, oh, wait, maybe that person's me. (laughs) And in teaching World War II, because I couldn't find anything to assign the students, I just showed them Casablanca because it kind of captured what I thought was missing, which was the early part of the war. So before the GIs start liberating beaches and towns, which is really only the end of the war. And A sort of telling of the war where Americans are not just being Americans alone, doing all these things by themselves, but really a story about alliances across national lines, complicated politics where, you know, um, different people have different kind of political visions for what the war is about. And so then I started thinking, okay, I want to do a kind of Casablanca style of World War II history. And once I had thought of that, I initially went to the kind of classic way that historians work. I thought, okay, I'm gonna do a history of Americans abroad during World War II, and I'll have a chapter on different kinds of people. So I'll do a chapter on foreign correspondence and a chapter on relief workers and a chapter on businessmen or something like this. But there was something really unsatisfying about that, partly because I I did wanna kind of think about this as a narrative experiment and think about how I could, I could use narrative to tell the story but also because it seemed very self-fulfilling. Like it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I was picking the types of people I thought were important. And then I would presumably then find a representative businessman or a representative foreign correspondent. And this is the way we normally work as historians if we do biography, right? You find somebody who is doing something in retrospect you've decided is important. Um, They've typically decided that they themselves are important enough to leave us documents, right? They've left their archive behind. And I thought, well, I, I don't really wanna do that kind of a biography. I wanted to sort of see if I could excavate a story that hadn't been told before and that maybe didn't have an archive on hand. And so I started thinking, what if I did something more like, um, I was thinking about John Hershey's Hiroshima. I was thinking about Thornton Wilder's Bridge of San Luis Rey, um, stories that centered on one particular disaster Um, But then sort of use that disaster as a way to talk about how a bunch of different random, you know, people ended up in that same moment in time. Um, And so then I I thought, okay, well, that seems interesting because then also, you know, I don't know what stories I'm going to tell. They're just I'm going to find out as I go. And so I started researching commercial aviation during the war. One of the things I think Americans forget is that, you know, there's still commercial flights going all over the place. Um, civilians are still traveling abroad in the war. This is this is something we kind of forget. And once I started looking at that, I very quickly found this Pan Am Clipper crash in Lisbon in 1943. Um, and Pan American Airways, as you as you know, was um, the first successful overseas airline, uh, American overseas airline, and they ran a very important commercial network um, between between uh, New York and Baltimore, basically the Eastern seaboard and the Caribbean, South America, Africa, and Europe. They also ran an important network in the Pacific, but that gets dialed back significantly when the Japanese invade Southeast Asia. And so I saw this crash, you know, this crash that had uh, involved 39 Americans who were all on the same plane. You know, the majority of them die in the crash. Um, there was some reporting on it in the newspapers at the time. And, they didn't release all the people involved uh, in the crash, all the people who were on the plane, but the people they did talk about were interesting enough to where I thought, okay, this might be something, there might be a story here. So I decided I would take an exploratory trip down to Miami where the Pan American Airways archive is. And when I got there, I, I hit a gold mine basically all the, you know, classified passenger and cargo manifests were there all the survivor testimony because, you know, because, um, uh, several people did survive. They gave, you know, detailed ac- accounts of what it, what had occurred during the flight and and during the the landing. And the pilot's personnel file, the, invest- the you know, and the investigation into the crash, all of this stuff was in the Pan Am archive. And so that gave me enough threads to pull at. And so I decided I would sort of uh, almost like audition these thirty nine people on this plane and see who could I find, you know, and. The amazing thing is, you know, if I had started this in the 1980s or 1990s, I couldn't have done this because, you know, there wouldn't have been digitized records that I could very quickly search for someone, figure out where they lived. You know, if I knew already where they lived, maybe I could find them in the phone book or, you know, but there's there's no way to do this work without digitized records. But it's amazing what digitized records allowed me to do. Um, at first, I didn't think it would be very, as you said, it is novelistic. And I wasn't actually imagining it would be at first. I thought I would use these people as a jumping off point to a much more traditional history, right? Just using them as sort of a, you know, here's this person, they're kind of interesting, maybe have a couple paragraphs on them and then launch into whatever, you know, profession they were involved in and talk about the broader networks of the war that they were involved in. But as I started researching, I could find these people. I couldn't believe it. I found, I could find out so much about these people. And so it became more of a novelistic experiment over time. And I became much more interested in thinking about how I could really try to you know, recreate the worlds in which these people found themselves, um, both through records that could tell me about them, but then also embedding them in other histories of, you know, places that they end up, India, uh, Java, England, uh, North Africa, and and so forth. So it became very novelistic once I realized the enormous power to, to use these search engines and find people.
0: Tell us about the Clipper. Uh- this was an incredible aircraft. It was mm. not only a, a, a technological marvel, but it was it was iconic in terms of sort of a projection of American power and influence the growth of American business, mm. the internationalization of the American economy. And yet it was a great big flying boat. It could land mm-hmm. only on water. This yes. at a time when, when many even larger cities did not have big concrete runways. They would, of course, after... World War II, I understand that you you actually went aboard a, a replica of the Clipper at Aviation Museum that was in Ireland, right? Yes. And, and you saw what it was like. It was quite luxurious. This was not mass tourism. It was comparatively expensive. And of course, it was flying as, as early as the, the late 1930s, which is uh, unimaginable. You think about the world the way it was then the captain's aircraft, for example, first person to cross the Atlantic ocean a hundred times by yeah. air. Uh, the Clipper ended up being the first aircraft to cross the world uh, or to, to fly around the world, not intentionally, but mm. because it happened to be flying in the Pacific mm-hmm. when uh, the Pearl Harbor was bombed. And so it was, uh, ended up flying around the world. And yeah. so, so, so tell us about the, the Clipper, both as a business venture and as a, mm really i think even today sort of a a romantic symbol
1: yes it was a huge icon um it's true that you know you're not gonna like jump on the clipper you know if you are a school teacher you know on your first trip you know vacation or whatever um i think that when we convert how how much it costs to take the clipper to today's dollars it sounds really really expensive but one thing i found was that was interesting was i it was during wartime, maybe two or three times as much money as it would have cost to board um, a steamship, which is probably a good way to guess, you know, how how a person would decide to take that plane instead of take a ship, as had been the common way to travel across the oceans. And I was struck by how many people were in fact taking these clippers. So over eighty thousand people are taking the the Pan Am clippers across the Atlantic Ocean during World War II. The government is bankrolling a lot of people's flights. Um, The government had secretly commandeered these aircraft, So they were basically government property. And so it is not mass tourism, but it's more people than you think. It's more people traveling than you think. And they're involved in an incredible array of activities. And, you know, what the Clipper does and I think why it became so iconic was it made, you know, totally improbable itineraries suddenly possible. You know, if you if you if you know, if FDR wants someone to go over and converse with Churchill, they're there, you know, in a a couple days. People were going over for, you know, the New York City Fire Department sent people over to study putting out fires under bomb, you know, bombing conditions. You know, you could do all kinds of things with these clippers available that you couldn't do if you were thinking in terms of steamship travel. So um, that's what strikes me about about, about this was the, the, the amazing opportunities and possibilities that opened up very quickly, even though it was expensive and even though, you know, not everybody's getting on them. But the ship itself is amazing. Um, and yes, in uh, Foynes in Ireland, on the west coast of Ireland, very near Shannon, um, there was a flying boat airport uh, where planes would touch down. And the, the reason why this was used, of course, was Ireland was a neutral territory. Like Portugal during the war. And so commercial aircraft could continue to go uh, there. And so at Foynes, the Flying Boat Museum, they've built an exact replica of the Yankee Clipper. None of these ships exist anymore. They were all scrapped after the war. Um, So you can't actually see any of these flying boats anywhere. But this replica is quite remarkable. And the reason they were able to recreate it so carefully was because in the Pan Am archive, there are extensive records on everything from the lighting fixtures in the bathrooms to you know, what kind of, you know, upholstery the seats had and what they were filled with. And, um, you know, this is a two-story airship and it's spacious, definitely considered, you know, compared to our current horrible coach conditions that we all endure. Um, and, you know, they had luxurious meals and, and everything on board. The war did take out some of the luxury. They did take out a lot of the like, you know, heavy carpeting and the nice China wear and things like that, and replace them with lighter things so that they could take more war cargo on board. But, you know, it was special. And I'm, I'm surprised at how many people don't know that, that the world's air routes were serviced by flying boats. Uh, in the first generation of international air travel, um, and people always say, well, "Why would they do that? You know, why would you why would you make boats that fly? <laughs> why not make just you know regular airplanes?" And it's it's a you know it's because there were no runways, and so you know a flying boat you just needed a river, you needed a you know a cove somewhere, um, and you could go anywhere you could you know anywhere you wanted to go. There were there were not ru- runways readily available all around the world. It's World War II that gives us this world of runways. And so interestingly enough, the war, um, basically paves the way for the, for the obsolescence of the flying boat, because once you can land plane land planes, um, land land planes, then flying boats are much less convenient, but there was something romantic about them, you know, you know, touching down in the middle of Africa or, you know, in Manila, uh, the U S you know, colony in the Philippines, when they start flying across the Pacific earlier than the Atlantic route, um, so, so yeah, this was a it was a remarkable plane, and I'm 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 surprised at how much has been forgotten.
0: Mm-hmm. And of course, many of the, the traditional cruise ship routes or uh, uh, freight ship routes had become infeasible because of the U-boats in the Atlantic. So these uh, the, the air routes generally hewed to the south. In many cases, the the clipper itself, of course. Uh, one thing we do need to remember, uh, in terms of, of modern aviation, the Clipper was not pressurized, so it traveled mm-hmm. about eight thousand feet above yeah. sea level. I traveled a route like that once on the on the old Berlin corridor before the mm-hmm. wall came down, and it was very, very bumpy. So mm-hmm. I assume there were cases where it was uncomfortable because they're not cruising at forty thousand feet. But the luxury and the novelty are very winning.
1: Yes. And I mean, and this was a involved way to travel, right? I mean, if you were, if you wanted to go to Lisbon, which is the main point you could get to in Europe after the war breaks out, they, before the war breaks out, they had been going all the way to Marseille. Um, but after the war breaks out, they, they received their, their, um, their route back to, to Lisbon. And if you wanted to get to Lisbon, um, if you were going in the winter time, You could fly from New York, typically you would stop at Bermuda and you would stop at the Azores. That's what the Yankee Clipper did in the book that I wrote. That's the story that that I tell is that those two hops and then you would get to Lisbon. But if you wanted to fly home and it was the winter time, you had to fly from Portugal down to Portuguese, West Africa, and then across to Brazil and then up through the Caribbean um, to get back to New York that way. And that was easier and took less time than trying to fly back the North Atlantic in winter, because even though flying on a boat plane was convenient because you didn't need a runway, you couldn't land it if there were heavy seas, frozen harbors, things like this. So they would fly the summer, the southern summer route um, back to New York. So, you know, you would fly thousands and thousands and thousands of miles uh, if you if you took one of these one of these planes. And yes, they, you know, they were only 8,000 feet or so above water. So they, um, you know, they would see downed um, ships um, and they would throw down emergency supplies to people who were in the water below them. And they would report on that Um, or, you know, they would spot U-boats and so forth. There was concerns that the, that the ships, the airships could be shot down. You know, the Japanese did attack Pan Am's network in the Pacific. You alluded to Ford's flight around the globe where he escaped on one clipper um, out of the Pacific during those attacks and flew, you know, all the way across the world to get back. So it I think it wasn't it wasn't very comfortable in, in those kinds of ways. I think I think you're right. And some of the people I write about are are right about their fears of flying. One of my characters was absolutely terrified of flying. And, you know, his profession, he was a he was a a foreign correspondent, <laughs> meant that he was nevertheless flying all over the place. He flew you know, he flew the Clipper multiple times. He flew across Africa, up into Iran, and then into the, the Soviet Union. Uh, he flew from there to um, to India, uh, and then back across Africa to South America. <laughs> and every hop, he's just terrified. And. Mm-hmm. Um, and writes about it so you know some people some people were really afraid of it other people seemed to have a great old time and thought this was just the best thing <laughs> I mean imagine living in a time you know when people are only just starting to fly I mean it's what a what like a mind-blowing thing that suddenly people are flying in the air it's you know and
0: it hasn't been around very long you look at the uh the fatality rates for the uh the early airline pilots, for example, of whom one was Charles Lindbergh. I mean, you were you were more likely to to die than to survive the early uh, the early experience of of the U.S. Postal Service flying uh, the mail back then.
1: Yeah, it's one of the reasons why the the Clipper was so luxurious, and they would serve these lush, you know, wonderful meals. Is they were trying to convince. You know, passengers. This is safe. It's okay. Mm -hmm. It's just like taking an ocean liner. You know, it's just like a train, and so they were trying to convince them this was safer than it actually was.
0: And of course, the 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 hops were much much longer because the clipper cruised at something like 200 miles an hour or less, Mm -hmm. and that's not very fast compared to a modern jetliner.
1: Yes, much faster compared to the steamship, but not not compared to our jetliners.
0: If we look for a almost like a a novelistic sort of uh, crux in the book. I'm looking here at uh, one, page 170. Uh, in between these stories of these individuals, and like I say, it's, the, the structure of the book is very interesting. The stories of these individuals, you have these interludes where you describe what it's like aboard the plane, you know, as night falls and they head out over the ocean. And the stewards begin serving dinner, et cetera, et cetera. And this is sort of the... Give, uh, give our listeners some an, an example of your your powers of, of narrative description here. Uh, they're taking off from Bermuda, Bermuda. They're heading to the Azores in in the Atlantic and the, and then to Portugal. Uh, this is, by the way, is February of 1943, which of co- is there's so much serendipity in this story really? for really? you as a historian, because this is right at the moment. When the United States, when the Allies in general have really not begun to win World War II, exactly, um, we're we're right on the right on the cusp here of o- uh, Operation Torch, which is Africa, that has not quite begun yet. Uh, everybody's clamoring for a second front uh, in in Europe. Uh, you know, let's let let's open a front. Let, let's go invade the Channel. And of course, uh, Eisenhower is saying, saying we can't do it yet. We, yeah. sh- we still got to work on it. It's still uh, more than a year from D-Day, so a tense time, I think, for a lot of people in in history, because there is absolutely no guarantee that we are going to win this war. We look back now and think, well, it was all inevitable, and of course, it it was it was a tough uh, four years for the United States. But then, you know, we began. To, we laid the foundation for the new global order, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, but it wasn't like that.
1: That's exactly what like I'm that. trying to show in this book is that the, the Americans in the world before the allies are winning, right? This whole part of the war that yeah. we've forgotten about, that Americans like to think, you know, Pearl Harbor is bombed. And then we fast forward to liberation. And yeah. what about this moment where the yeah. world is just on the edge of destruction? And, in and so how that would many feel to live many places. In yeah. so many places. And how would that feel to live through that? And that's what I was Hoping to- I'm sure
0: there were there were students in your class at BU upon seeing Casablanca who probably thought, oh, I guess I didn't really know that the war had anything to do with Africa.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, it had a lot to do with
0: Africa and Southern Asia and, yeah. uh, well, the entirety of Asia. And that doesn't come through in our traditional narratives. You know, we think of the beaches of Normandy on one hand. On the other hand, we think of the home front and Rosie the Riveter and Glenn Miller and all the travails of people. I think, you know, how many war brides Mm. suffered devastating mental health problems during the early part of the war? knowing that you know, we were not, quote unquote, winning, and this wasn't mm-hmm. going to happen anytime soon. And yeah. just the upheaval in so many ways. Uh, this is page 170. This is where everything sort of comes together. Uh, they, the Yankee clipper takes off as they race toward Bermuda in the setting sun. Uh, passengers sampled hors d'oeuvres. What incredibly different passions have brought each of them here? They put their faith in such diverse endeavors, business or law, the stage of the pen. They rooted for different political parties, futures, empires. They were haunted by different enemies. Uh, Interesting theme here. Uh, Mm -hmm. Psychic enemies, not just shooting enemies. Mm. Uh, Cossacks or carpetbaggers, communists or fascists, and by war past. And all of a sudden, and yet here they were on the same plane, traversing the same planet, Hurtling toward the same war and the same disaster, and I'm thinking, oh, this, <laughs> this is the this is the fulcrum on which your story turns. And of course, how you get here is you take that trip down to Miami and you look at the passenger manifest. And uh, of course, a lot of the people on this manifest, and the, the manifest is included in the, in the book. A lot of these people were military enlisted uh, enlisted or officers in in the military, um, and we can't find out much about them. Uh, Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of like uh, majors and lieutenant colonels, Mm -hmm. people in the the mid to higher ranks up there. Who knows what they were on their way to do? The only uh, person actually in the military in in, among your cast of characters is George, George Spiegelberg, who is a lawyer and is a uh, uh, is helping out, basically helping out FDR, even though he is a silk stocking Republican himself, helping out FDR with procurement of supplies. Uh, to if, all these things that need to be done to win the war, so you look them over and you find your people, and all I could say is you know wow if 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 these people didn't exist, you'd have to make them up <laughs> uh because they're let's see what, what would we have here mr Spiegelberg is is working on behalf of n p of fdR. Um, he is actually in in uniform with the military. Harbors some jealousy of his older brother, who was something of a World War One hero, mm-hmm. um, and the others. We've got uh, we've got uh, two journalists here. Uh, we have a Broadway performer, the only female among mm-hmm. the the main cast members. Uh, we have an oil man and a, a shipping agent, a Spanish uh, descent. In fact, a Spanish citizen for much of this time, and. As you ran across these, well, of course, you found them. Then you had to narrow them down and think, wow, look at some of these people. I know, for example, you had that experience with, uh, was it George? It was George's uh, grand nephew, right?
1: No, that's Frank, George's daughter.
0: Okay. Frank, uh, Frank. Frank Frank Roberts. Oh, that's right. Ben, uh, Frank, how do you pronounce his last name? Kewel. Kewel, Kewel, yes. Yes. A, A salesman turned correspondent for the Mutual Broadcasting Network, which is, wow. So yes, Franks, uh, you come across his stuff. You might've thought, oh, geez, there's nothing on him. Mm -hmm. Then you send out a casual inquiry. Thank you, internet, via Ancestry.com, and you find his a uh, grand nephew who says, wow, I just happen to have a vast trove of his yeah. stuff here. Yeah. He sends it to you. You end up helping to place it with the University of Iowa archives, which is great. Now more people can use it. So some serendipitous stuff here. Yeah. Um, were there any people you had hoped on that you ended up having to cast aside because you just couldn't find anything?
1: No. So I did narrow it down. And there were some people that I couldn't find enough about to really consider. I had probably about a dozen people on board I could have done something about. The military, the, the The U.S. Army officers are really interesting. So there's 12 of them on board, and they're not flying in uniform. They're actually pretending to be civilians because you're not supposed to be flying commercial aircraft into neutral territories as a military officer. So this was this was really hush-hush, and um, it's one of the reasons why the reporting on the crash is so important you know, incomplete because they can't actually admit that these guys were on this plane. So there's no reporting at the time on what they were up to. And based on lots of um, records I've seen, I don't think even their families in in many cases knew what they were, what they were up to. Um, and so, you know, th- there were people who I wanted to know something about and couldn't find anything about. And then the other category of people were people that I could find quite a bit about. And over time, I narrowed it and narrowed it and narrowed it. So, um, initially I had considered including, uh, William Walton Butterworth Jr. He's, the, he's a diplomat on board. Um, and for many years while I was researching this, he was in the cast. He was, he was, in, he was in there. Um, but as other people's stories got richer and more capacious and covered so many things, like you were saying about Frank. I mean, Frank is a Olympic athlete, um, who yes. becomes yes. a salesman in Southeast Asia And then when the war breaks out, talks his way into a job with mutual broadcasting system. Uh, He ends up in he ends up in Australia and he's a Pacific first guy, you know, and so his story encompasses so much. And then, you know, Tamara, who's a, you know, a Jewish refugee from Civil War Ukraine, who then becomes a Broadway star um, and then volunteers with the USO. she, you know, she gave so much. So each of these people, as I developed their stories and they became richer and wider, I realized that for the reader it was better to have you know, seven people instead of eight people or nine people. And so um, William Walton Butterworth, for example, was interesting, but I didn't think his story gave enough value added. He was involved in a economic warfare campaign on the Iberian Peninsula to try to buy up Wolfram and things like that from, from the Portuguese and Spanish markets so that the Nazis didn't buy it up themselves. And while that's interesting, I felt like, Manuel Diaz's story had already kind of covered a lot of that ground. And so I had to make hard choices basically about you know um, who was giving me enough value added and new story. And um, the pilot initially too, I was going to weave him in just like the other um, characters and a brilliant group of historians who who read the manuscript in draft and helped me sort of do the final revisions, helped me figure out how to do these interludes uh, and, and sort of how to have the pilot story be, you know, woven into those interludes instead of having him be a regular character, which I think is helpful for readers because there's only so much you can hold onto in your head, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, That, that's how the cast got narrowed. And yes, I would love to know more about what those U S army officers were doing
0: um, and this is like really, really. It's very much like a a novel or a movie or a television series. And if you look at main characters, five or six is about the max.
1: Yeah. And yeah. More
0: than that is too many, and yeah. and you got to narrow it down. Even if it, you know, you've got a big ensemble cast of twenty people, there are going to be five or six of them who are going to stand out, and you're right. going to remember. Let's uh, tell me about Tamara. Uh, because it, it, she uh, she kind of captured my imagination and my heart because it's, it, it's such a great story. Uh, a child of immigrants, the oldest. For years, her father was missing in the war. She came from Russia uh, and, uh, and was Jewish and I- endured all the sorts of persecution you might imagine under those circumstances at this time during the, the 1920s and a coming of age, and her father uh, vanishes in the, in the aftermath of the, the, the Russian Revolution. Uh, for years, they have no idea where he was. It turns out he's living in the Bronx, yeah. <laughs> and they find him in the Bronx, and the family moves to the Bronx, and so, so t- tomorrow grows up in the Bronx, and there's a lot of weight on her shoulders. Mm-hmm. She is the oldest. She is struggling with an old culture and a new culture blending together right at that point where she is just not quite young enough to become fully um, acclimated to the culture. She is still mixing in Yiddish words with, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, especially you know, talking with her mother and mm-hmm. um, she is still some of an, uh, an, an outsider to the world then uh, wants to go into show business and her family is saying, Oh, you know, it's so risky. There's not a lot of money. You've got to help support the family, etc., etc." A lot of pressure on her. And she works under a lot of, appalling conditions your description of for example of she goes onto the vaudeville circuit right at the time when vaudeville is really going down because of the advent of the talking pictures yeah. and she's stuck in back water places like uh, middle of nowhere oklahoma uh with virtually no power and, and that that being compounded because she is a woman And then, uh, you know, caught up uh, at another time in Prohibition with gangsters and booze and actual shooting at one point. Uh, Then goes to Broadway, uh, uh, has a love affair with with the playwright Clifford Oditz, uh, which could have been a a novel in itself. (laughs) And eventually joins the USO. Um, If anybody wants to know uh, why is this woman famous, it's the song Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. Mm -hmm. Google it. Look it up on YouTube. Tell us how, you know, she was she's was emblematic in so many ways of the American experience. And I think what's one thing that's interesting here is some of these people are immigrants. Mm-hmm. Some are children of immigrants.
1: Yes. Um, I think only one person isn't either an immigrant, a child of immigrants or a grandchild of immigrants. And that's Ben Robertson, who is a. Southern, white, Baptist, South Carolinian, you know, who traces his family back before the American Revolution. Uh, but the rest of them have very deep or, and, you know, um, recent immigrant um, uh, influences in their life. Um, but they're all, you know, they're all very different. They have different religions. They've different, you know, they're from different parts of the world. Tamara, yeah, she, I mean, she was, she's so fascinating to work on. The thing that I found especially interesting about her as I started to dive into her Was in one way, you know, it is this story of the young Jewish, um, you know, immigrant girl who wants to make big. You know, it's kind of a familiar story. Uh But I thought it was really interesting once I realized that after her affair with Clifford Odets, which um, is is like you said quite a quite a moment. um, uh, One of my research assistants found his writings to her in an unmarked folder in his papers, and that's where we got all those love letters that he wrote her. after that moment, she starts passing for non-Jewish. Yes, and to me, that was a really interesting part of the story because she doesn't just pretend to not be Jewish. She doesn't just pretend to be, say, you know, um, you know, American Gentile or something. Mm-hmm. She recreates herself as a kind of Russian um, white, which is yeah. basically a person who supported the Czar, opposed the Communists, and had to flee Russia. Uh, in the wake of the revolution, and this is significant because the Jewish community absolutely despised the Romanovs. The Romanovs were anti-Semitic rulers who, you know, sub- you know, submitted them to all kinds of oppressions. And the Whites are, you know, they're fas- They're on the fascist side. as in this brewing war between the left and the right. And and Tamara herself, her politics was very anti-fascist. Um, and the kinds of you know benefit concerts and things that she did show the kinds of causes she supported. Um, integrated entertainment in Harlem, you know, Chinese war orphans, you know, the lo- loyalist side in the Spanish Civil War. But she's performing as a kind of counter white counter revolutionary. So that was very interesting to me. And it said a lot about the kind of careful maneuvering a woman had to do in that moment. Um, because the the left, the culture of the of leftist politics was so um, patriarchal And the community she was coming from was very patriarchal as well. And so this was an unusual choice, but it's an interesting one because it allows her to sort of carve out this very esoteric path um, and enables her to find a way to, you know, make her own professional and personal choices that... That otherwise she might not have been able to. So, so to me, that that story of passing was really interesting. And a, yeah, lot she, of people, uh, a lot of Americans in this period were passing. I mean, they're, you know, fair-skinned yeah. uh, uh, black Americans who pass for white. A lot of, you know, Jewish folks change their names so they don't sound so Jewish. And so that's also a, a common um, thing that people are are contemplating and experimenting with in this period.
0: And, and uh, tomorrow traded on a certain, I guess you would call it exoticism. Mm. Um, You know, we don't don't know exactly everything about her, but we know that she intrigues us. She is an intriguing woman with a a past, a mysterious past, uh, almost like a movie character.
1: Yeah, people compare her to Greta Garbo.
0: Um, Oh yes, very much so. It's
1: that sort of like European temptress where you can't Mm -hmm. quite place where they're from, that sort of persona.
0: And then we look at fascism, Manuel, Manuel Mm -hmm. Díaz-Riestra, Spanish-American, member of the upper, upper, upper crust Mm -hmm. of Spanish-American society in New York City, uh, you know, hosting parties at the, the, Mm -hmm. uh, the Waldorf Astoria and this sort of thing, owner of a shipping line. Uh, for a while, they're they're transporting passengers, which which is interesting. This is before the advent of the modern cruise business. They are transporting passengers. Uh, he and his partner, uh, and also transporting freight. Mm-hmm. Much of it, uh, he gets involved in the Latin American trade. You know, we think back to the days of of shipping. You know, you, you go back far enough, it, it, everything ties with it ties in with you know the United Fruit Company and. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that, uh, that, the Latin American, South American trade eventually uh, gets involved with Cuba and then Spain and becomes, uh, what would we say, a, 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 f- a friend of the Spanish right wing. And there's so much stuff. One thing I think this, this, this book underlies, and then we'll see this too with uh, uh, Harry, the oil man, is that so many of these things being traded are everyday commodities, Mm-hmm. magnesium, tin, chromium, oil, of course, the king of commodities in the 20th century. But these are all war materials as well that right. can be used in the manufacture of ammunition. Uh, in the United States, for example, we had severely restrained the production of copper and rubber for American use because they were so important to the war effort. And you think, well, I'm just just—I'm just selling uh, tires to Spain. What's the big deal? Yeah. But there were so many gray lines that were crossed here and I think particularly with, with Manuel they, the the gray lines became darker and darker and it became more and more obvious that he was in fact trading with the enemy mm-hmm. and, and would would face uh, public recrimination for that.
1: Yes. Yes. It's he researching him was really really interesting and I think it was a good lesson in why American historians need to read non-U.S. history, Uh because when I started working on well, first of all, when I started working on him, I thought, this isn't going to be interesting. I mean, cargo shipping, you know, Uh boring, right? Uh Uh (laughs) I was like, cargo shipping is so interesting. Uh Um, And once I started researching him, if you research him in U.S. documents, you can get good chunks of this story, right? So very quickly, I found um, the controversy that he stirred up um during the Spanish Civil War when he was shipping things like you were saying you know things that don't seem like they matter but they do Chilean nitrates mm-hmm. to Lisbon to provision Franco's nationalist troops and the nitrates used for ex- making explosives mm-hmm. and then blocking the loyalists from shipping their own supplies from Mexico and the you know some of the very few places willing to support um the Spanish Republic and so that you can see that in the in the American newspapers because um somebody betrays him a spy on his ship I don't know they they release to the communist press all of his letters that show him conversing with people in Mexico and Cuba and in Spain about you know we've got to help franco win and let's you know I wish we could have a, a battleship in the strait of Yucatan you know to bring the war to the new world you know it's really serious mm-hmm. and and then you also can find very quickly um records of his arrest a few days after Pearl Harbor for smuggling silk and oil and other things So when I started, you know, I did a typical American historian thing where I just assumed, okay, so the story is he immigrates before World War I. During World War I, he starts a shipping business. He's Spanish, so he's neutral. So therefore, he's just involved in business. And it's the Spanish Civil War that really politicizes him. That's kind of the assumption that I made that I think a lot of people would make. And in drafting his story, at first, I had a section in his early chapter where I I had like a paragraph where I said that, go back and read the Spanish literature on World War I. And then on I went and I kept going and, you know. And so then, you know, a couple of years later when I'm revising the chapters, I go and I actually do the work and read Spanish history of the early 20th century, Spanish history of World War I. And oh, my gosh, guess what? <laughs> Spain is basically already in a civil war during World War I. And I suddenly realized, OK, you know, this guy isn't just on the sidelines, you know, and then it's Franco's uh, coup is what politicizes him. I think it's much more likely. And then I found after that a lot of evidence that his partner was involved in World War I era, you know, ties to Germany and things like this. And so it's just it's another sign of how American historians need to to not just read U.S. history. So the other thing I did was I learned Spanish so I could go to Spain and do the work in the Madrid archives. And some of the best evidence of his um, dealings come from come from those archives as well. And so he was he was definitely one of the I don't want to say I mean, I guess he was really fun and, and intriguing to research because he obviously did not want a lot of his business dealings exposed. And so there wasn't a very obvious way to go about researching him. And one of the things that I quickly figured out was if I followed the ships he service, I could, I could find pots of archival documents. And so, cause there's not, it's, it's like four or five ships that are like his ships that are regularly traversing the Atlantic between Latin America and Spain and the U S and so you know, you can go into the U.S. Navy records and they have folders on the ships. They don't have a folder on him. They have a folder on the ships. But then in those folders, he's all over the place. So mm. um, so that was that was intriguing. And then finding out, you know, that the British in Bermuda were um, censoring mail. They were pulling mail off the clippers and any boats that stopped and and going through and um, reading all that mail and censoring it. And so they were they were confiscating his um, mail, photostatting it and then sending it to American authorities the FBI had tapped his phone at, at one point. I mean, it, it got really into, it was like, you know, what's his name? Ray Liotta at the end of, uh, <laughs> Goodfellas, you know, like where he was, the, the walls were closing in on him. And I find it so interesting, you know, that he, he's, he makes a deal with the Americans towards the end and you think this has to be his, like, he's figuring out how am I going to get out of this? You know, how am yes. I going to, yeah.
0: Yeah. A great character. And then we have, as I say, these people are all interesting. I, uh, Benjamin Franklin Robertson, Jr., the writer, a Southerner, Mm. uh, a a Southerner. And this is important. And I, you know, we are all haunted by personal demons, ghosts, Mm. memories. They may be deeply personal. They may be historic. They may be uh, linked to ethnicity or place where we came from things we know or that we've heard that our ancestors suffered. Um, These can be so varying. And uh, Ben is a, wow, uh, comes from the South, ends up, works for the AP, uh, doesn't care for that because AP is, is, as he said, it's sort of basically stenography. Mm. Okay, write down everything the president said. And for a while, he was high on that, like, wow, I'm in the same room with FDR. This is cool. Uh, But after a while, there's not much you can say. You you simply, this happened, then this happened, then so-and-so said this. So goes to work uh, for a variety of news outlets, ends up trotting the globe. And It takes a lot of personal baggage into World War II, as I guess everyone did. But uh, he was from the South. Was it it North Carolina? I don't remember. South Carolina. South Carolina. Okay. Um, Yes. A a state that would become majority Black Mm -hmm. uh, after Reconstruction. Well, that was majority Black, but they weren't counted as citizens at that point. And and of course, in, in some respects, didn't get to exercise all the rights of citizenship for a long time. But South Carolina is in a unique position here um, because uh, Ben's ancestors uh, were not, did not own huge plantations, but they were slave owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he he grows up with the, the 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 legend of the lost cause, the glories of the old South. He grows up with that, and he never abandons that. Yeah. He also never fully embraces the cause of integration or curing racial injustice. He won't go that far, but he goes a long way in many yeah. things. And yeah. so he's, he's a curious character. One small sidelight of his life at least from, from our own point of view, is that he was gay. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you discover that in some correspondence, there's not a lot of mention of it because it, he doesn't bring it up and you don't know much about it, but uh, did this, you know, add to his idea of being sort of an outsider, maybe mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah. the, the journalist, the, the neutral observer, who's kind of outside of things and he ends up, you know, becoming a a, a crusader for the cause of Europe uh, you know, as uh Germany, as you know, this this is the 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 strategic history we all learn. Germany thought it was home free once it had signed the non-aggression pact with Russia, and then Russia goes back on that pact, and all of a sudden Germany is at war with Russia, and everybody's saying open a second front, and there's incredible uh upheaval for this for the longest time. I I remember reading a a biography of uh, Harry Hopkins, a number of years ago, uh, detailing the all of these missions that Hopkins made to London, in essence, um, uh, to meet with with Churchill and others over there, and, and them pleading for the United States to enter the war, or else, uh, you know, the glory of Britain would be snuffed out, et cetera, et cetera. And this was a period of. Um, well, just over two years from the beginning of World War II. And Robertson sees what's happening over there. He lives through the Blitz, comes very, very close to being killed. And as many people did, and and of course, many people did die in the Blitz. And is like so many people over there, you know, waiting for this possibility that any time now the German... Troops might come ashore at the the White Cliffs of Dover or wherever and, you know, and invade uh, England, uh, which, of course, never happens. But he's seeing it all firsthand and his reporting style, he's grappling with this idea of of objectivity, Mm -hmm. which is and pleading for the cause of this second front, which uh, I, I think Ike wants probably as much as Ben does. But Ike knows that it's not immediately possible. But obviously, Ike can't get together with Ben and have a serious talk about the logistics of all of this there's too much secrecy bound up with this but Ben undergoes an interesting transformation but one thing he never lets go of is this idea of the color line and and in fact he does see the Nazis as something of a a, a corollary to a carpet-bagging Yankees and you think wow okay you got to make a connection there but, but as you say people were afraid of a lot of things there was a lot to be afraid of during this period especially early in 1943 so mm-hmm. ben an, an interesting character and i assume a lot of his stuff was because of you you've got his writings but you also got his his letters his notes his clippings etc
1: Yes. So he, he's the one person I wrote about that has been written about by scholars before. And he, you know, he was a journalist, he was a writer, he published books, and, you know, did what writers do, which is save his archive. And it's now at Clemson University, his alma mater. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was a struggle to work on, because there was, unlike the other people I worked on, where I was, you know, searching haystacks for a needle, uh-huh. he he almost had too much stuff. There was too many, too many doc. I mean, I, I had to be really careful at not, I mean, he, the whole book could have been Ben. I mean, uh-huh. you know, he could have written a whole book about him, uh-huh. but one thing I did struggle with was trying to figure out how to wrestle with what seems maybe would seem to modern readers as counterintuitive, uh-huh. which is what you're sort of alluding to the fact that he was, Um, he was pro new deal at least until the late thirties he was for the little guy. um, And, you know, he sort of self-styled himself as a, as a liberal. And um, he was very generous um, with women. He treated women colleagues with respect. You know, he did all the kinds of things that today might signal to us progressive person. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. He, in particular, what I was stumbling over, he um advocated for indigenous people's rights. He advocated for the people of Guam to have voting rights. Um, you know, they were colonial subjects, but not citizens. And towards the end of his story, when he spends time in India, he becomes an outspoken advocate for Indian independence, um, and writes about that with a lot of fury, even though he could, you know, he risked his press credentials or you know, the goodwill of the British. Um, and yet, you know, the assumption is and has been made by other scholars that, oh, well, then he's also for civil rights in the mm-hmm. U.S. He's so therefore and, and Ben is against lynching. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the assumption has always been, well, then he's just a, he's a leftist. He, he believed in, um, in in civil rights. He believed in human rights, all these things. And he was against Jim Crow and against. And one scholar has even said, oh, his time in India made him even more pro um, black rights. And for a long time, I kind of did that thing where you, you know, you question yourself and you're like, why why can't I get on board with this? Why can't I make this work for me? And I realized that other scholars were making a set of assumptions that were not at all supported by the documentation. What they were missing was the fact that our own assumption about what progressives are like and the kinds of causes they support and how they all kind of, you know, we kind of sift ourselves into these buckets of like, if you're pro this, you must be pro that. And if you're, you know, uh-huh. that was not the way that things worked, particularly among white liberals in the in the American South in the uh-huh. first half of the 20th century. And the concept you really need to understand this is anti-Black racism. Uh-huh. He does not let go. He, in fact, he doubles down on the lost cause um, and writes about it um, in loving ways in the middle of World War II. And he lauds his, con- his Confederate ancestors and you know, we know that this—he's not the only American to do this. I mean, there were you know um, white Southern GIs who would you know raise the Confederate—they raised the Confederate flag at Iwo Jima—and and somebody else was like, "You can't do that," <laughs> you know, <laughs> because this was a kind of worldview that was extremely compelling to a lot of a lot of people. And so I tried to I tried to convey that complexity, and I think for for readers today. The pieces don't fit together the way that you would expect. And mm-hmm. I think that's good, right? Because then you realize, oh, I'm making assumptions about what someone's politics should be based on these other things. But people are complex. Um, they not. get really invested in certain kinds of inequality and then they they have they ignore other kinds. And I mean, Frank
0: spoke out for India as well, did he not? Or what am I mistaken? No,
1: Frank. Frank was um, broadcasting from Australia some very nasty things about Gandhi.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Okay, and uh, yeah, uh, Gandhi. Yes. Yes,
1: because you know, I mean, I, I find this interesting too to see how angry a lot of Americans were in late '42 after the Quit India movement really destabilizes the subcontinent, and in you know, as we've been talking about, the world is on the brink of chaos. The Allies are losing. And a lot of people are like, what are they doing? This isn't as important as winning this other war. But of course, again, I tried to tell this from Indian points of view by using Indian history so that readers could also feel, you know, sympathetic to that and see why they would do that at that moment. And then but then also feel Frank's frustration, too. So you can kind of see how these different points of view are in conflict.
0: That's right. Frank is the one who ends up flying back to the United States and then... uh... And then is headed to Europe again yes. and, and, in fact, has traversed the globe when he ends up dying in the crash. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um Others, as I say, um, wow. Uh, uh, Captain Sullivan's an interesting guy. Uh, the oil man, Harry, that reminds me very much of, of uh, uh, Daniel Juergen's book on oil, The Prize. Yes. Uh, which is sort of this giant history of the importance of oil for the entire 20th century um, and the how oil is yeah oil's a commodity and we use it in all sorts of you know neutral kind of ways but it it's security in war yeah yeah, um, yeah. Uh, as, as, as I remember a quote from General Rommel uh, when his tanks ground to a halt. In, uh, in North Africa, and he mm-hmm. said, shortage of petrol, it's enough to make one weep. Yes. And so we'll leave that at that. Um, a couple of themes here. Tell us a little bit about your research. Um, you were obviously, I, I even saw a reference in there from uh, the Bruce Barton archives at the University of Wisconsin. Barton yeah. was, uh, he was, he was uh, uh, an interesting guy, the, the ad man, uh, was campaign manager Mm-hmm. for uh for george uh, yes. during the 1930s when george was was running as a silk stocking republican for congress yeah. and lost uh-huh. um uh but I, I worked with the barton papers myself so i see a lot of archives here mm-hmm. um is more being digitized or you physically must have been in a lot of places over the course of about 10 years is that right yes,
1: yes i um I was in a lot of places and in those places multiple times in some cases. So the National Archives in the U.S. and D.C., I can't even tell you how many times I went there and the National Archives in in the U.K. as well. Um, And then other archives I went and, you know, because, you know, my first book, I I was in a French archive for six months, and there's no photocopier, there's no cameras. So you're just handwriting notes the whole time, you know, for all these like handwritten notes from that book. But now that when I started the second book, it was when people were starting to use digital cameras, and you could take them and a lot of archives were letting not all archives, but a lot were allowing you to bring those cameras in. And this was great because one, I just had a daughter. So I had a, a one-year-old at home. So I couldn't I couldn't go for six months somewhere and just sit there and luxuriate in the files. And so you can do these sort of smash and grab operations where Pan Am archives, I went down for a week, photographed everything I thought I needed, then came back and you can sit on the couch in your, your basement, your living room, whatever, and, and sit and process the documents from your house. Um, so I was able to go and do all that stuff faster than i could have without digital photography um some archives still wouldn't allow me to do that madrid was still all handwritten but you know that's okay Uh, and then some places because of digitized databases that tell you just even where things are i figured out very quickly so like when i started writing about george's campaign you know i figured anything that came up in his correspondence any name i would then go see if that person had papers anywhere
0: things and branch things, out. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. and then if
1: they had papers, I would contact the good archivist at that place and say, is there anything in that archive on that my guy. So in the case of the Bruce Barton papers, I did not actually go there because I just wanted his correspondence about George, and but I emailed them and I said, do you, you know, this is what I'm working on. Um, he was the campaign manager. Is there anything in there? And they said, "Yep, it's here and you know, so they'll charge you whatever, you know, 50 bucks or whatever to scan that those files, you know, three folders of stuff or whatever it was. And so I ended up getting little particular things from lots of archives that way. Mm -hmm. And then places where I just wanted to roam and like the FDR archives or the there's Irish intelligence files um, in Ireland that I, you want to just kind of look through stuff. It's not a targeted thing where you're like, I want the correspondence between this person and that person, then I would have to go. So it ended up being kind of a combination of those, of those two, those two strategies.
0: You kind of as is the norm with this, you sort of workshopped this book over a period of years by spinning it out as journal articles and conference papers and gain some valuable feedback that way. Uh is anyone in particular or any particular approach that really stuck with you and you you may have had those aha moments?
1: Oh, it's definitely as I, I sort of alluded to this before, I did a book manuscript workshop when I had basically drafted everything and uh, my editor, Susan Ferber was there. Mark Bradley from the University of Chicago was there. Melanie McAllister from GW was there. Uh, Will Hitchcock from Virginia was there. And Andy Rotter from Colgate was there. And was just like the most incredible spoiled event of my life, <laughs> like my, of my mm-hmm. professional life, where basically you have an entire day in a room mm-hmm. with, with these smart folks who have just read this manuscript and you basically just triage it and say, okay, what, what what do we need to do? What needs to be fixed? How is you know how can we get this to work better? And they really helped me figure out the structure. When I had first drafted it, I was drafting storylines somewhat separately of each other. So I would just kind of like, and I was actually drafting them out of order. So I I did a lot of things out of order. I you were talking about um, models. I read a lot of um, screenplay theory because, you know, in regular screenplay theory, you have the, the first act, the second act, and you have to have, yes. right? Well, yes. when um, filmmakers started making what they called multi-protagonist plotline movies, it defied the rules, right? Because you're supposed to have one protagonist, and you have to do this and that. And so I read a lot of theorists who are thinking about how to make narratives that do that work. And so... Um, mm-hmm. I, it, it kind of freed up my head to not try to draft it in order, but to just sort of draft these storylines separately and then have, have the confidence that later I'd be able to figure out how to put them back together again. Mm-hmm. And so when I first put this together, I had drafted it so that in the intro, the entire flight, flight takes place and the plane crashes in the intro and then the whole book flashes back and goes forward in time through two parts just and then you land, and then the conclusion re-narrates the crash, and you find out why it crashed and who lived and who died. And Mark Bradley was like, "Don't crash the plane in the intro." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so so right, right? And then you have, you have, and then and Melanie McAllister came up with this brilliant idea of the interludes, where you just get back on the plane every few chapters, right? And you mm-hmm. kind of do the hops from you know New York to Bermuda, Bermuda to Azores, and and then that allowed me to sort of chunk out the chapters into these you know sections by time period so the World War one section the you know 20s and 30s section then the early war section and then 1942 which becomes really important and so that moment um where they helped me do that was just totally amazing and 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 super helpful but yeah I mean every time I share this you get you get great insights from folks, either from historians who know parts of the world that I don't. So I relied a lot on readers who are experts in India or Russia or, you know, and then also just people sometimes will make little comments that just stick with you in a way that, you know, you go, Oh, that, you know, that, that's helpful. And there, you know, there were lots of debates about whether I should be more heavy handed with telling the reader what to think, you know, the way that I drafted, I really try to let the reader decide for themselves what they think about these folks. And I don't really tell you a lot of what I think. Well, you know, why, what did Harry really believe? Did he, you know, why was he really, do- you know, I, I might the have. oil to, man,
0: yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you know,
1: um, what's Manuel's game, right? When he makes the deal with the Americans. And, yeah you know, I could have spent a page sort of hypothesizing, but I kind mm-hmm. of like the novelistic, just let the reader kind of sit with it and decide for themselves.
0: So. I think you're going to I hope you're going to and I hope this podcast will help you ignite some really interesting talk about American historiography. You'll uh, the book as we speak the book is right on the cusp of being published so you know it'll get out there and you always think it's going to change the world it probably won't do that but it, <laughs> in some small way it might. I would think people will be talking about this as a new way to approach history, mm. one that is very, very challenging. Mm. Um, uh, 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 do you anticipate others uh, trying to emulate this sort mm. of? I know it's not always possible, mm. but trying to emulate this sort of approach. And uh, do you expect yourself that you'll be doing something similar to this, probably as your 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 next big project?
1: Mm. I would love I would love it if American historians could see the value in using so much non-American history. Um, there you know there are lots of books about Americans abroad, Americans traveling the world, you know as correspondents, as businessmen, or as this and that. And if you look at the research that's based on typically it's based on the accounts of Americans. You know, to me you you can't trust what Americans are saying because they see the world in a certain way, but right. if you cross-check that you get a totally richer and different story. Yes. Um, Yes. And so if, if people, if, if historians took something from this, I would love it if they took that methodological insight to heart and say, Oh, if I just read, you know, five books on whatever place it is, my Americans are going to not written by American historians, but by the historians of that place, Mm -hmm. I will see things my character doesn't see. And that's a richer story Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of the, Method of just sort of starting with a group of people and seeing if you can follow them and then following them like rabbits down rabbit holes. I am totally addicted to this and I really want to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having a lot of anxiety because I don't know if I can come up with as cool of a project. <laughs> so oh, yes. It feels yeah. like a le- I'm like, how can I ever do something as exciting as this again? I mean, what, <laughs> you know, but I really, really like it. I like um, the mystery, the challenge of having to try to find these needles in haystacks, the uncertainty of knowing where the story is gonna go because instead of me deciding what's important, I'm following these people and then figuring out why they think where they are is important. And there's something liberating about that. Um, you still have to do some hard work, putting an umbrella over all that, right? And sort of saying a like, here together is what this is really gonna tell you. I really enjoy sort of scene setting and that novelistic um, attempt to bring a world to life and let your reader feel the textures and the, of the place and sort of feel their way through the history instead of just telling them this is what was happening. This is, so I definitely want to do it again. I don't yet know what I want to do. It's super tempting to be the disaster author and just like- <laughs> Pick a like train robbery or yes. you know maybe like a 10 car pileup on the Brooklyn Bridge and see yeah, I' am try try,
0: trying to remember who was that the movie maker they called the master of disaster <laughs> with all those earthquake and tidal wave yes. and fire yes. movies and yeah you think what's next
1: yes so I could do I could easily easily do another disaster but I'm trying to resist it because I don't want to be the disaster lady <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I guess that's probably probably not not a face you would want, but uh, maybe uh yeah may- maybe interesting could be yeah. very interesting. Well, uh, I-, I look forward, to, and and I know a lot of people will be looking forward to to, to seeing what you what you might have up your sleeve. Yet, um, I know it's just like it's it's like asking a doctoral student. So when is your dissertation going to be done? That's the worst possible thing to ask. Uh, uh, but we will. Hope that we see more good stuff from you because I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm certainly very intrigued. So, Brooke Blower, Associate Professor of History at Boston University, author of a very intriguing new book called Americans in a World at War Intimate Histories from the Crash of Pan Am's Yankee Clipper. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I hope to spark some, uh, some, some good discussions. And I, as I say, I look forward to, to what comes next in your own personal story.
1: Thank you so Thank much you for having me. me. This was Absolutely. so much
0: fun. <laughs> it's been a pleasure.